These are Grindstaff publishing audio files. Room to Rome, Chapter 9, Poland The bus had been rocking back and forth on its trek from Germany to Poland for hours now, and I hadn't slept. It has always been hard for me to sleep on a moving vehicle, especially on an adventure. There's always too much to see, too much to take in. In the five and a half hour ride, I had probably logged three hours, and when we pulled into Dansk at 5.47am, I was feeling less of my best. The bus stopped outside the main train station, Dansk Glowny, and the motley crew of bus travelers funneled off. Most riders had cars waiting for them or a home to go to, but I had not planned on getting to the town so early and I had nowhere to go. A minor panic came over me. It was still dark, extremely cold, and once again my phone's map wouldn't load after working fine back in Berlin. Regaining my wits, I walked into the train station and found a McDonald's. I knew they would have Wi-Fi and something warm to eat, so I ordered my meal, found a spot, plugged my phone in, and began to plan the day. Once I was settled, I looked around at the people frequenting a fast food chain that early in the morning. Most of the people looked like any business person or traveler you would see anywhere, but then my eye caught a young woman in the booth behind me completely passed out. Super skinny with shaggy brown hair clumped and falling onto her face with arm extended out across the table, she seemed to be completely out of her mind on some drug, probably heroin. Not long after, a manager came over and tried waking her to no avail. The man came back with a female colleague and they picked the girl up and out the door they went. After the warm coffee began to work its magic and I had saved screenshots of the tourist spots of dance in my hostel's location, it was around 7 and I decided to explore. The great part about traveling for so long and not having any plans is the freedom from time. It was a Thursday in the early morning, which meant the city was populated not by nosy tourists, but by everyday Polish people doing their thing and getting ready for the day. Walking from the train station into the downtown district, I walked amongst business people in nice clothes and into the tourist area, with shopkeepers cleaning their windows getting ready for the day. The architecture in the downtown district was beautifully old and unique. The buildings were skinny, with a facade topping which slanted up with sharp angles like something for Edward Gorey or Tim Burton. The ambiance in the district felt gothic and bleak, but in a way which had charm and warmth. The cobblestones met my feet with a roughness which complemented the stark yet vibrant colors in the buildings above me. Totally lost in the beauty, I walked underneath a large arch and found myself along a large canal stretching to the Gulf of Danzig. Along this canal was a strange building made of wood, which was massive and had an overhang reaching above the large canal. Fascinated, I walked towards the behemoth and soon found it to be a crane. More specifically, a medieval pork crane. I was mesmerized by the shape and size, plus the buildings around it, and the way the entire canal looked in the early morning light. With plenty of time to spare until I could check into my hostel, I walked all over the old town district, a pretty simple feat since it is quite small, then headed over into the more residential region of Dansk. Like so often in tourist cities, the downtown areas are filled with shops and bars and people with smiles on their faces, but once you get out of those areas, the residential spots are where the city shows its true face. Not long after I escaped the beauty of the old town, I found myself in a poverty-stricken place with run-down, Cold War-era apartments which looked grim and depressing. The people on that side of the canal lacked the smiles and brightness their fellow downtown compatriots had back with the crane and brick-strewn arches. 
There, the markets had bars in their windows, and the buildings were painted gray. Grim, it seemed like nothing had changed for a very long time. Having seen enough of the residential area, I turned a corner and began to head back toward the canal. Walking past what seemed to be a small industrial area, I happened to see two men exchange money for a small package. Their eyes snapped to me. They said something discreetly to themselves, and the man who was handed the small package began walking quickly toward me. Panic came over me, and I hurried back to the old town, the safe innards of the city where things were brighter and still shined. On the way, I looked over my shoulder and saw the man behind me, but after turning down this street and that, he was gone. Once amongst the camera-toting tourists of the downtown, I finally felt safe. I found a small diner in the middle of an open area in the Old Town District, ordered a large beer, food, and sat charging my phone in a booth looking out into the courtyard just in case a man with a package decided to cross my path again. After an hour, the beers dulled my anxieties and I embarked on the long trek to my hostel. The hostel turned out to be farther than I expected, and after about a three-mile trek on a footpath running alongside a pair of train tracks, I saw the sign for the hostel. Walking in, I was greeted by an extremely nice lady who insisted on being called Mama. I checked in and was given a tour. The first floor was where Mama and Papa lived and essentially ran the hostel. Ascending the staircase, we made our way to the second floor where the bedrooms and showers were located. Some bunk beds, others single rooms. The third floor was living room with an impressive rack of movies, a large TV, the kitchen, and crates of vinyl records. Mommy left me with the key and I walked into my room. Four people my age stood looking at a map with three bunk beds lining the walls around them. We all exchanged pleasantries, and I threw my backpack on the top bunk and we soon dove into conversation. After a while, Papa came up and introduced himself when we talked about his love for the Grateful Dead, and I brought up my old fishing boat captain from Alaska being a deadhead and we instantly became friendly. An awkward man with a bald head and a raggedy ponytail jutting down his back, he always wore a tie-dye t-shirt and exuded an aura of warmth shared equally by Mama, his wife. After Papa, the name he insisted we call him, talked to everyone in the room, he asked me to go to the back here with him so he could show me a deadhead flag he took to all the concerts he had attended. Once in the large, well-manicured backyard, he asked if I smoked marijuana. I told him no, and he looked confused. Here I was, a backpacking American with a beanie and shoulder-length curly hair coming out of the back, who liked the dead but didn't smoke weed? Shrugging, Papa said, okay, in his muffled, accented way, and showed me his deadhead flag and talked about the concerts he had seen and his love for Jerry Garcia. It was getting late and I decided to find some food and curl up in bed as multicolored bears danced through my mind as, as a melodic guitar played the dead in my head. The next day I devoted to myself. No walking around aimlessly, no photos, no adventures. Just me, sitting on my tablet, working on getting caught up on my fledgling blog and sorting through photos of the past few countries. I took all my gear to the third floor and, being Friday, no one was there. I spread out and started sorting through Papa's CD collection. It was as if the entire music scene of the 60s were confined to those few crates with everything from Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Cream and the Doors. I pulled out the first Doors album, then found the second, then the third, and before I knew it, all six studio albums with Jim Morrison at the helm were laid out in front of me. For years, the Doors had been the answer to the ever-present, who's your favorite band, question, and to be in a hippie hostel with a couple of days relaxation and writing to get caught up on, I couldn't believe my luck. As soon as the first album began funneling through the speakers, I began to sort through photos from the previous countries and write about what had been happening. As the photos began floating in the files, Jim Morrison's vocals filled the room with their haunting, shamanic sound. I played each album in its entirety and sorted through thousands of photos. Papa came up once to see who had unleashed the doors upon his hostel, and we talked about how amazing they were and the impact they had upon the world. 
Through his John Lennon glasses and a small smirk, he said his usual, monotoned, okay, and disappeared. In the evening, people came lazily through the living room area, and I decided to stop playing the music over the speakers and concentrate on writing. Eventually, my roommate from Columbia sat on the couch beside me with a girl I had not yet seen, and they began making conversation. The girl had just flown in from London and was going to be staying in dance for a few days while she and the Columbian guy were old friends. They had met some time ago on an island off of Honduras, while they were both getting their scuba diving instructor licenses. The English girl was flamboyant and loud with equally boisterous red hair, accentuated by a thick accent. It was obvious she was a partier and loved to have a good time. The three of us talked until late that night and I agreed to stay an extra day in northern Poland on account of my do-nothing day. Early the next morning, I booked my train to Krakow and Hostel, there for the next day. As I was going through the mundanity of scheduling, the couple from the night before came up and invited me to go with them to Malbork, a town not far from Dansk, with massive castle from the 13th century. We asked Mama and Papa the easiest way of getting there, and they told us there was a train close to the hostel and gave us a timesheet. We packed our things and made our way to the tracks with what we thought was plenty of time to spare. We were wrong. With the tracks in sight, we saw our train come and go. We had misread the schedule and had another few hours until the next train to Malbork would arrive. Without missing a beat, the English girl suggested we get beers and head back to the hostel to wait. Arriving back to the hostel, we sat in the backyard in the early October sun and talked about traveling where we would all go for our next adventures. The two made the scuba island sound appealing, and we talked about their time on the island, most of the train ride to Malbork. The last half of the trip, they both slept and made me the lookout for the next stop. The town of Malbork is fairly small and it felt a bit like the residential area of Dansk. Not having really planned the trip, we weren't sure where the castle was located, but soon asked some people and were on our way. As we came closer, we saw numerous military-grade trucks pass by and it felt like we shouldn't have been where we were. Not long after the trucks passed, we found the beautiful red-tinted castle and made our way down toward the drawbridge. We were too late to get the audio tour, so we had to go into the castle blind. And with none of us doing any research on the castle, it was more about admiring the beauty than the actual history of the grand building. In Scandinavia, Reed and I had gone to a few forts, and before that I had only gone to forts in America, so the Malbork Castle, for me, was thrilling. The same can be said for our Colombian companion, as it was his first castle as well, but the girl from England was not nearly as impressed as the fact it was a castle, but how grand the grounds really were. Walking through the front drawbridge, we came upon the massive courtyard in brick, which stretched on for days. The intricacies of the sculptures in the gardens were astonishing along with the detail of the floor tiles with their intricate designs sprawling and matching the rising columns, who too had to find designs all on their height. We spent a couple of hours walking through the gigantic building, traversing its numerous staircases and large cavernous rooms. As we left, I smiled and was glad to have gone on my first stranger-to-friend adventure. The three of us grabbed some food and then headed back to our train and back to Dansk. Discussions of traveling came up again, and we discussed where our next stops would be. Mine would be a train down to Krakow in the southern regions of Poland. The English girl would head back to work in London, and our Colombian companion would stay in Poland for a bit longer, then move to Barcelona and stay in Spain for school. Mama and Papa both greeted us when we returned to the hostel. Their cheery eyes and smiles made us happy and content. I went to the third floor and made sure my reservations for the trip south were in order and began writing once again. The night set in, and as soon as I closed my tablet, a young couple from England walked through the third floor door. The couple turned out to be a guy and a girl, both 18 years old, from England, traveling for their gap year. They too had come to dance from Berlin on the same overnight bus I had taken, but their experience in Berlin had been much different. Being so young, their main purpose in travel was to have the best time possible at whatever the cost. 
If that meant taking speed, then heading to an exclusive punk rock party in the innards of Berlin, then that is what they did. My form of traveling was different. Up until that point, I had not gone to a club, nor had I really partied. The goal of my travel was to see as many important sights and learn about as much culture of each place I visited. No drugs, little money, and great distances to travel. We talked for a couple of hours and it made me appreciate the differences in our age. If I had done my same trip when I was their age, as opposed to doing it when I was 26, the trip would have been vastly different, as well as much shorter. Plus I would have come home with a different standard for success. The kids from England were great for what they were. Kids. I was glad for the conversation and to hear their stories, but also for the parallel they drew with their travels and mine. Maybe at 18, my grand European adventure would have been different. Maybe I would have partied and spent money and imbibed in the drug scene. Maybe at 26 I was boring, more introverted, more grounded. But maybe, also, my maturity seeped into the cracks and made the adventure more robust and exuberant, more resistant to the lows and more excited for the highs. The more I talked to the youngsters from Britain, the more I realized I was content with what I had done thus far and would do in the days and months to come. I said goodbye to the partying too as they went out to find the next happening spot downtown, while I packed all of my things to get ready for the early train ride the next morning. Maybe the things we learn as we get older make us boring, but the experiences we have along the years will stay with us for a lifetime. As I laid in bed before sleep, wrapped his warm fingers around my consciousness, I couldn't help but smile at how far I had come and the adventures which lie ahead. The hostel room had a smell of dank feet and was a bit musty from all the mouths opening and closing in their deep stages of sleep. I reached for my phone, nestled under my pillow, and saw it was only eight. I tried to roll over, but two guys across the room were in a weird synchronized snoring pattern, whereas one breathed in a rattling snore, the other loudly exhaled something phlegm-laden. Having gotten used to that kind of waking, I rolled onto my back and began to write in my phone's journal what had happened the day before. My fingers flew. Eleven-hour train. Started alone. Then old granny and her grandson. The car was crammed with Polish women. Two backpackers in their fifties told me I was in their seat. They didn't like me. Finally to Krakow, tired and worn out. Day 25. Gathering a few essentials, I quietly slid from the top bunk to the old wooden floor. Out the creaky door, I found my way to the common room and opened my tablet to try to plan the day. It is always a weird feeling getting to a new town in the dark. Everything seems brand new and strange in a way which makes the night before it seem like it didn't happen. How had I found the hostel? When did I check in? Who had I seen the night before? After making a general plan of what sights to see and how to get to them, I returned to the musty hostel room, grabbed my things and made my way out of the large wooden doors onto the streets of Krakow. Whereas dance felt like walking around a museum with all of its preserved building fronts and old crane looming large, Krakow felt like a working, living city, bustling in the morning light trying to get things done. The hostel was located close to the old town district, Stare Miasto. So within a few minutes, I was in the heart of the tourist sites. As was my mission along the trip, I purposely didn't do research as to what to see so I could avoid being an absolute tourist. As I walked amongst the people in the different colored buildings, I kept feeling an air of something different. It didn't feel like a simple town. It didn't feel like overly touristic. I kept walking and found myself surrounded by people my age with a look of intelligence and ambition in their eyes, and soon found I was in the middle of the oldest university in Poland, Jagiellonian University. College campuses all over the world share that same feeling permeating the air. Everyone seems busy on these campuses and the ambiance feels like people have a purpose. I had not been on a college campus since Sweden and it felt good. My mind began to buzz with the ideas of future writing projects and photographs to take. With legs ever moving, I passed all the young adults in their nice clothes and dapper European swag as I contrasted them with my travel clothes 
and felt dingy, yet somehow proud of myself for leaving my own dream I had had for myself when I was on my own college campus. An almost Kerouacian ideal, where a traveling intellectual can be in rough clothes and still pursue an art and a dream. Soon those young people with bright eyes began to give way to older people with fanny packs and cameras hanging pendulous on their necks, and I realized I was no longer on the campus proper, but coming up to a large castle on a hilltop. Well, Wild Castle is a 14th century castle sitting large with red-tinted brick and high turrets. Similar in feeling to the Malbork Castle back in northern Poland, it exuded an impressive air and I followed the gaggle of tourists up the hill towards its gate. Before I came too close, I saw signs indicating payment for entrance and guides. Not wanting to spend the money on either, I went back down the hill and around to another entrance and walked through the gates. I didn't make it too far into the courtyard until my guilt took over and decided not to be a freeloader and returned back down toward the river running through a cracker out of the castle's feet. Snapping a few photos I was hungry and decided to go back towards the university to find food. After inhaling an entire pizza with a liter of beer, I went in search of my next attraction. Crisscrossing all over the Stare Miasto and taking in the beautiful cathedrals and market squares and outside art, I tired of the tourist scene and began taking random alleyways in search of something fresh. After a turn here and a turn there, I found myself in a bookstore. Throughout the trip, I had been trying to find good books that weren't about traveling and were in English. It was surprisingly difficult, and I had finished my last book in Germany. I walked in and was expecting to be greeted in Polish, but instead heard the beautiful, familiar sounds of English. The bookstore was magnificent in every way. With the walls lined with bookshelves 10 feet tall, and a small cafe situated in the middle, with books lying on sitting tables all around it, the bookstore felt like something out of a dream. The man behind the counter of the cafe was a man from the UK with a smooth accent and crazy hair, the kind of person one would expect to see in such an establishment. A smile shot across my face as each book spine I read was in English, and there were topics such as The Beats, and 20th Century Writers, and The Lost Generation. Breaking my astonishment, I walked to the cafe and ordered a latte and told the man how nice it was to stumble upon a bookstore such as his. We talked for a few moments while my drink was being made and I sat my backpack on the hardwood floor. I searched over the titles and finally found Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. With book and latte in hand, I made my way to the back of the surprisingly large store and found the reading room with people of all walks of life at small wooden tables with quaint reading lights on each. The bookstore occupied two hours of my time while I sat relaxed, drinking my coffee and reading the book and taking in the people doing their own thing on their own time. Normalcy is so rare when traveling for a long period of time and whenever I found it, I would take it in and relax as if a sudden bubble came over me, blocking the outside world and warming with its radiance. Sipping out from my meditative normalcy, I said goodbye to the man behind the counter and made my way back to the hostel. Walking through the lobby, I asked if they had any openings for a tour of Auschwitz the following day, to which the girl behind the counter nodded and set up for me. Having my fill of traveling for the day, I grabbed my tablet from my room and checked email. I had set up a reminder informing me when the 21 days was up from when I lost my bag back in Finland. That day was tomorrow. Having heard nothing from the airline since, I filled out the initial missing luggage form. I decided to write them an email just to cover my ass. Within an hour, I received a response saying they had found my pack in the lost luggage section of the airport, and because of that, it had never been scanned, which is why they hadn't informed me of its disappearance. In complete shock, all I could respond with was a simple thank you, and told them to send it to my mother's house back in Oregon, since I couldn't say where I would be when they eventually got around to sending it. I sat back in my chair and thought back to the inconvenience not having that bag had caused, but also how simple the fix would have been if I emailed them sooner. 
The rest of the night was spent watching a documentary and thinking how many life lessons, some hard and some trivial, could be learned about this bout of traveling. The next morning I awoke to the familiar sound of snoring, loud, unstoppable snoring which only a hostel can produce. With the same routine as before, I quietly escaped the room over creaking floorboards, out the large hostel door into the brisk morning haze. The shuttle to Auschwitz made its appearance as three girls, younger than myself and much more attractive, were making small talk on the sidewalk. We boarded the van, found our seats, and sat in silence as anticipation stood thick amongst us. The grizzled driver weaved through the crowded streets, picking up a 30-something guy from one hostel and three seniors from another before embarking on towards Auschwitz, a small town about an hour's drive from Krakow, which houses Auschwitz. As we left, the driver pulled down a screen from the roof of the shuttle and began playing a half-hour video documenting the horrors of the Holocaust and the history of the concentration camps. The atmosphere in the shuttle shifted from nice pleasantries and meeting new people to one of sadness and despair. We had all assumed this tour would be one of darkness and levity, but none of us prepared for what we were about to see. The shuttle parked in a large lot and our tour guide, a mid-30s Polish woman, came aboard directing us to merge with another group waiting nearby. All of our backpacks and purses were left in the shuttle, and I had slung my camera around my neck like the rest of the tourists I had tried to avoid along the trip, but in such cases where the importance of the experience would mean so much to myself and people back home, the exception to my logic was made. My group was probably 20 people strong, and we moved toward the security line in one large mass with few words spoken between us. We were told to empty our pockets and go through a metal detector. The line kept shuffling along, and soon we were given audio pieces to better hear our English-speaking guide. Once the entire group was together again, the tour guide in an understandably somber tone told us about the rules as to not touching the history surrounding us, and to not take pictures in certain buildings, and above all, to respect the lives lost on those grounds not so many years ago. The wind was chilly as we came to the notorious entrance gate of the concentration camp with the phrase, Work makes you free, dotting the top of the iron gates in front of the sullen gray clouds in the sky. The barbed wire stretched black in every direction while attached to the metal post looming high with a curved top pointing into the camp. The next hour was spent touring the blocks of Auschwitz with the halls covered in mugshots of prisoners, the mountains of eyeglasses, boots, and poison canisters used to kill over a million people. We shuffled like curious specters to the infamous Block 11 with its standing rooms and starvation cells, all the while hearing our tour guide's grim voice go in and out of focus, seemingly ricocheting off the walls and into our headphones so distant. Walking along outside the cell blocks were hanging hooks where prisoners' wrists would be tied together, hung on the hooks of their bodies hanging unnaturally until their shoulders would dislocate. Firing walls were still standing at the end of long alleys with flowers laid to honor the unknown number of humans shot dead at the wall's feet. There was so much horror to be imagined as we passed guard towers and signs of the skull and crossbones in front of what seemed to be miles of barbed wire. The last stop on our grizzly tour was the cremation room, with one side devoted to gassing the prisoners while the other had large ovens to bake the once living human into more manageable proportions. All of us walked out of that room in some form of shock. Some people cried, others shook their head, but all of us were quiet. Our guide took us to Birkenau, officially known as Auschwitz II Birkenau not far down the road. The same drill was followed as we met with our counterparts, found our guide, and made our way to the infamous Birkenau Gate. We walked down the main road with the train tracks running parallel and came to a single cattle car. The guide explained how a man had the cattle car, and it was the exact same model as what the Nazis used to bring hordes of people from all over to that death camp. Once they arrived, soldiers would order the people inside, some who had been traveling for days to line up. 
the ones who were deemed able-bodied would be put to one side, destined to spend the rest of their time in the camp under harsh working conditions, while the ones who were lame were told they would clean up after they walked to the end of the long road. What awaited them was death, and our tour group walked the same road all those thousands of people had. The heaviness of that walk was hard to deal with as I thought of what they must have been hoping for. One last bit of humanity, by being able to watch themselves and hope to get better and leave the torment they had not known they were succumbing. At the end of the road, we were met with a monument to the people of the camp. The train tracks ended there as well, and poignantly, someone before us had laid a bouquet of roses, at their terminus a hint of beauty in a place which had seen so much death, and exudes a somberness I had never felt anywhere else before or since. We toured the living conditions of the prisoners, past all the rubble, which had been crematoriums and barracks. Some of the buildings left standing, there were murals painted showing the last thing many of those people felt before they died. Hope. The tour ended with the story of how those people were freed and the tales of them trying to get back to their old lives, a life that was far different from when they had left it in a place that was mutilated by a relentless war. All of us in the tour group thanked our guide and we walked back to our shuttle to be taken back into the real world. No one spoke on the trip back. My mind kept racing back and forth at what I had seen, and I kept thinking how unfortunate I and the millions of tourists each year were to be able to view the sights of one of the worst assaults on humanity history has ever known. I was grateful to have toured the haunting relic, kept intact and open for the whole world to tour, not for some gruesome exhibit into the macabre, but instead a reminder to our species of the depths we can sink if our reality is twisted and our watch is down. The shuttle dropped the three girls and I off in front of our hostel mid-afternoon, and we all talked about how heavy the day had been. I walked around the town trying to get the feeling of reality back and try to come to terms with what we had seen. Normalcy set in only when I saw lovers holding hands with heads on shoulders and people on sidewalks smiling, with beers in their hands and people in cars waving their hands at people driving poorly. We as a society are not perfect and never will be, but what travel teaches is we, all over the world, are out for the same things. We want to be happy, do right by our family, provide for the ones we love, and try to leave this world a little better than when we came into it. I stopped at a food truck and grabbed a humongous hot dog, bought a bottle of wine, and retired back to the hostel for an early night. After a few hours, the wine was empty, and I had had a nice conversation with some people in the common room. We talked about travel and where we had been and where we were going. I climbed into my bunk that night amidst the snoring and low talking and thought of the people lost at Auschwitz. My eyes closed and I was happy I had the privilege of traveling and seeing things that startled me and pushed me to a point I hadn't known was near. I was happy to be living the life I wanted, and I was happy to have plans to see so much more of that beautiful land they call Europe. End of chapter.